This is how we experience his love in real space and real time. And so let's read Ruth chapter 3. See if anything good happens after, after midnight. <laughs> this is God's word. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? It's not Boaz, our relative, with whose young women you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lay down at the end of the heap of the grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not, Willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And she came to her mother-in-law, and she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until, <laughs> wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us, and it's absolutely true. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are good, and you, um, you have set your affection on us, and yet, even as we read this chapter, and we wonder, you know, <laughs> it's amazing to see how you use awkward situations for your good, for your glory and our good. And so I pray you would teach us, and that you would... Teach us how to follow you even in awkward and tempting situations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. I titled this sermon, Does Anything Good Happen After 2 a.m.? Because, I mean, as you read Naomi's plan, did you think it was a good idea? <laughs> You've got a, I have a two-year-old daughter when she's a teenager, and she comes up to me and says, Dad, I have a plan. You're like, no, never. And who was that guy? You're never to see him again. <laughs> all right? Because we all know, human nature being what it is, that if you're in the dark alone, a male and a female, right, commandments get broken. 
And, and wisdom would say, according to Proverbs, right, avoid all appearance of evil and you know, so on and so on. So does anything good happen after two in the morning? And that the way this story is told, I mean, it, it's deliberately meant to get your blood pressure up. It's meant to, for you to realize how awkward this is, for you to feel the fact that they are a man and a woman um, who are in the dark. And so I'm, I'm going to start by a couple introductory comments just by saying, yeah, this is part of God's Word. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training in righteousness and to rebuke us. And some of the things in this passage, well, really, they confront us as a culture head-on. Um, just the whole idea that marriage is between a man and a woman and, and physical oneness should only happen in marriage, right? And so... As we jump into this, this moment of morality after dark, it's here to, to teach us, to teach us how to follow Christ no matter the situation, and to show us as well how loved we are. And the reason I put it this way, you know, does anything good happen in the dark, is because it also opens it up to all kinds of sin. In, in the Bible, Darkness is the place where sin hides. It's the place where sin happens. It's, it's normal life. Right? There's a reason you tell your kids to not go, after, go out after dark, because that's when you get into trouble. Right? Uh, and I met a, an ex-con, a guy who had just gotten out of prison in Mississippi. And I was, we were sitting out in downtown Jackson, and he was... I was just commenting on how nice it was. He says, well, as soon as it goes, the sun goes down, it's like night of the living dead out here. It's when the zombies come out. That's when the guns come out, the gangs come out. That's when crime happens. That's when sin happens. Because in the darkness, when you're alone, uh, that's when our inner selves are revealed as these opportunities arise. And so here in, in chapter 3 of Ruth, we have Ruth and Boaz alone in the dark, and they act morally in the dark. Right? Far as we can tell, they are above, you know, they've kept all the commandments. They don't cave into temptation when no one is looking. And so just start there. You know, how are you doing when you're in the dark alone? When, when you think no one is looking. Even as I ask that question, I know it's really hard to read this chapter because of the lenses our culture have put on us, uh, that the marriage and romance is, is an ultimate thing. It's an all-controlling thing. Um, because we, outside of these walls, outside of the church, if you don't believe in biblical morality, people would say it doesn't matter what you do in the dark as long as you don't hurt somebody else. Right? That really are culture's obsession, especially this is what our young people are going to face and are facing, uh, obsession with romance and all the things that go with it, it really does blur our ability to think straight about these things. Because the newer commentaries, they, all they talk about is the love story part of this chapter. <laughs> you know, look at how Boaz met Ruth. It sounds like a movie title. You can't read this book without falling for the love story, and it is a love story. But, you know, you hear 
this great story, and you just sigh. Look at how beautiful it is. God's a great matchmaker. <laughs> he brought these two people together. You, know, you see what I mean? This, this is really hard for us, excuse me, to think, to think about marriage and romance and God and how these things relate when we live in a culture that's pushing marriage and romance on kids, younger and younger. I, mean, I read this as a youth pastor, because I was a youth pastor for four years. And not only was I learning from the kids that, that younger than middle school, they're being faced with these temptations. Um, I wasn't just reading about it, I was hearing stories. Fourth and fifth graders, uh, because of the, availability of the availability of the internet, Really young kids, as young as six years old, first graders. It's, it's unbelievable. And so I'm reading as a youth pastor and saying, okay, if I'm going to teach this, I'm going to tell the kids, you know, sex is only in marriage. And Naomi had a crazy plan and God used it anyway, but, you know, the real temptations. And so as a, as a dad, as a former youth pastor and your pastor, I would counsel you as we talk about these things. I'm going to talk about it as marriage. But to, don't wait till your kids are older to talk about them. You know, as opportunities arise, and there's literature in the back to help, help you think through it, don't wait till they're teenagers because it'll be too late. They're talking about it with their friends. Uh, they're finding it by accident through the Internet. So here's the big question of, of Ruth and Boaz, is when you are alone in the dark, how in the world do you make the decision when no one is looking to be moral, to keep God's law, to do the right thing? Especially in a culture where if you love somebody, you're free to do whatever you want. C.S. Lewis has this great analogy from his book, Mere Christianity. And just, just suppose this was happening down the road at SPAC, where he says, you come to a, a foreign country and you have this big show, and the, here's the act. It's one person coming out on stage, and he's got a covered plate. And it's a packed-out crowd. Right. And as the spotlight turns to what's on this plate, C.S. Lewis says the guy just slowly lifts off the lid just to give people a glimpse of what's underneath it. And the crowd just starts going wild, screaming and celebrating. And the glimpse of what, what the act is showing is it's, it's bacon and mutton chops. It's food. What, what would you think about those people? You'd say, well, they must be really hungry if they're going that crazy just at a glimpse of food, right? But what if you found out that they have more than enough of it? That they have plenty of food and they're still getting really you know, absurdly excited about food. But you would say, they have a very messed up relationship with food. Their, their desires are all out of whack. They're being controlled by something that's not meant to have that much control. And C.S. Lewis turns around and says, what would you say then about us? Who hide out in dark places and, and look at these things, that gather in darkened theaters and get all excited about just to watch an opportunity for a love story to work out, or even to pull the love completely out of the equation. 
you'd say your desires are messed up. That, that they're out of whack, that something, something is off. And so I say all that because just because we're told to do the right thing when nobody is looking and your heart has these desires that are contorted and twisted because, because we're sinners, because culture is putting this pressure on us, whew, it's hard. So how do we do it? How does the Bible help us think rightly about these things? And we're going to look at the crazy plan. We're going to see Ruth's demand. And then we're going to see how morality after midnight happens. Um, but to, the way to start is just to see where Ruth is, is in the Bible. That Ruth takes place in the Hebrew Bible between Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And so Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31. Here is a worthy woman, a single woman. Right? A worthy wife, right? It, that's what it ends to. And it goes into Ruth, and Ruth is the example of what a worthy woman looks like. And then you have Song of Solomon. So right between marriage, you got marriage on this end and a white worthy wife on this side, and Ruth right smack dab in the middle. And the point is that Ruth is deliberately put here by the editors of the scriptures to say this is how, to here to help single people and married people Think about love and marriage. Uh, to think about oneness. To think about the physical nature. Um, to see how God fits in the equation. Right, to see that marriage is a gift from God and that romance can't live up to our godlike expectations of it. But just because we say there's a plan for it doesn't mean it's evil, it's wrong. You see that? So let's look at it. That was a, a shotgun blast of an introduction, but it, it needed to be done. We've got Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We see Naomi's plan. That Naomi, remember the story, right? Uh, there are two, two widows coming back to Bethlehem. And Ruth had gone out to the field. She met Boaz, and Boaz was over-the-top generous with her. And he, it said the chapter 2 ends with Ruth spending all her time in, in the harvest for the next seven or eight weeks in Boaz's field. And so Naomi figures out that the time is right. If you're going to ask this guy, you know, let's do this now. And so Naomi's been sitting on this plan. And I want you to see just how much Naomi loves Ruth here. I mean, she must be coming out of her grief because she's able to think about someone else. Because Ruth is a foreigner, a single woman, younger than Naomi. And when Naomi passes away, who's going to care for Ruth? And so she comes to Ruth and says, should I not? care for you. I want you to find a husband. I want you to find rest. Right? This is, Naomi's playing a matchmaker here. Find me a find, catch me a catch. <laughs> and and you've, if you've been following the story, this has been Naomi's desire for, for Ruth from the beginning. Right? Ruth chapter 1, verse 9. May the Lord show his kindness to you that you might find rest in the house of your husband. These kind of things. And you remember Ruth's response. This is what's so amazing. Ruth says, well, I'm not worried about that, Naomi. I'm worried about you. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to bind myself to you forever, you know, till death to us part. Which was her way of saying that the Lord has protected me. I live under his, the shadow of his wings. You know, I have God's affection. I'm okay right now. 
And so here's her plan. She sends Ruth out husband hunting. And I want you to see that as Naomi tells Ruth to go to Boaz, she's actually sacrificing her future for Ruth's sake. She doesn't tell Ruth to say what she says, what Ruth actually says. She just says, you know, go lie down next to Boaz and see what he tells you, which is her way of saying, let's see if he marries you. If he redeems you, that's an added step. If he redeems you, that means he has to go through all the legal steps. But if he just marries you, that's great. Naomi's not worried about herself right here. A Ruth and Boaz marriage is much simpler, and so she says, bathe, clean yourself up, make yourself smell nice, anoint yourself, and go to Boaz and make it clear that you're not a grieving widow anymore and see what he does. Wait till he's done eating and drinking, uncover his feet, lift up his clothes, expose his feet, lie down next to him, and he'll tell you what to do. And do this at the threshing floor. Okay, and I know the threshing floor to us, I've, in their world, what they did is it was a place outside of town, up in the hills somewhere where the wind would blow, and it had a rock floor. Um, it was basically a place where you could take the barley, throw it up in the air, and the, the chaff would blow away, and all the stuff you want to keep would land on the rocks, and then you could sweep it together and store it, and uh, nature would help you do that work. And so Naomi's saying, in the dark, Ruth, I want you to expose yourself to danger and then watch Boaz and lie down next to him. I mean, it really does seem, as you read this, that Naomi's trying to get the wedding, the honeymoon, the engagement, everything, all at once, all, all done by morning. It's a crazy plan. <laughs> Especially if you know Ruth's history. Ruth's the Moabite. The nation of Moab came from a very similar situation where uh, Lot's daughters got their dad drunk, and along came a baby. Because <laughs> think about it. What if, what if Boaz isn't the worthy guy that we've been led to believe? What if Boaz just says no and Ruth gets crushed? Or what if, well, Hosea 9.1 tells us that the threshing floor was a place where all kinds of immorality happened. It was the Hebrew red light district. It's where people would go to hide in the dark. This is a crazy plan. Who would come up with this? And Ruth, astonishingly, just says, okay, I'll go, I'll do it. And this is where you see the demand. Because Ruth doesn't, she follows Naomi, Naomi's commands right to the letter until, until Boaz wakes up. Because at midnight, Boaz finds his feet cold, and surprise, he rolls over, here's this woman in the middle of the night, and she immediately says, this is Ruth, your servant. Spread your garment over me, which means marry me. It's an ancient way of saying that. And then she says, for your redeemer. She's saying, marry me and redeem Naomi. And she's saying, my, I want you to marry me for the sake of Naomi, is what she's saying. Which is very strange especially to us who get married, not because someone else tells us to. We get married because we want to, because we have found the other person worthy. Very, very individualistic. 
I mean, if this flies in the face of all kinds of cultural norms. It's the man who's supposed to propose, not the woman. I mean, she doesn't ask. You notice this, right? She, she tells. Spread your garment over me and redeem me. Incredibly bold. And to redeem Naomi, let's review this practice of leveret marriage because I know it's foreign. But basically what God had done for, it was to help suffering people. That if you, well, God gave the land of Israel to his people as an inheritance forever. And he put all kinds of stipulations and plans in place so that if somebody got sick and died, or you fell into debt and you lost your land, you had opportunities to get it back. And one of the ways to do that would be, like in Naomi's case, if there's no more men alive able to continue the family line, the land's going to fall away. And so there was a practice in place that, that the closest relative could marry the widow and then all the, the property of the widow would belong to him. But when a son comes from this new marriage, all that property would then go to the son so that the family tree would continue. So it was a plan to care for the suffering, to care for the grieving, to care for the, those in debt, to care for those struggling, weak and needy. So you think about Boaz, what Ruth was telling him to do was marry her, and should they have a child, give all the money he just spent to marry her and to buy this land, give it to their son. It won't be his property. So she's saying, I want you to spend all kinds of money on me. (laughs) Empty your bank account, not just to pay the bride price, but to buy this field and to think think of us in the future. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to give till it hurts. Marry me. Redeem us. That's a huge demand. But Ruth is really smart because she actually takes Boaz's own words and turns them against him. I don't know if you noticed that. Because in chapter 2, Boaz says, I pray that you would be blessed, that you would be repaid by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And she turns around to Boaz and says, I want you to take me under your wings. I want you to be God's visible picture of love for us. Put put your money where your mouth is. (laughs) Fulfill your own prayer. And so that's what happens. Boaz says, yes, I do, I will. Everything under the law, I will do. There's another redeemer closer, but if I want to do this. And so here we have, in the middle of the night, in the dark when no one else is looking, morality after midnight. It's an extremely tempting t- situation. And you've got Ruth thinking about Naomi and Boaz thinking about God's law. And Naomi and Ruth, it's, it's a selfless moment when nobody is looking. It's astounding. So how do you do that? So this is where we get to the point. All right, look at verses 10 to 13. Morality after midnight, it is actually possible. Boaz says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear, 
for I will do all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. And it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if not, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So lie down until morning. pretty amazing. Boaz is blown away by her boldness. And he says, your demand of me is greater than your lifelong commitment to Naomi. That Ruth is entering into a marriage, not for herself, but for her mother-in-law. I don't know how well you get along with your mother-in-law, but there's mother-in-law jokes for a reason. Just, Just the reality that Families who live close together, right, who are sinners, have conflict. And Ruth is selflessly putting her whole life, she's pouring it out as a sacrifice. Right, so you've got Ruth marrying Boaz for Naomi and Boaz marrying Ruth for, well, I mean, somewhat out of love, but, but really it's, it's an act of, of honoring God's law. If you think about it, why do we get married? Why did you marry the person next to you as a Westerner? Or why do you look forward to marriage if you're single? Because of this mysterious love thing. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know how to describe it. We just know they're the one. I mean, there's physical attraction. We, there's mutual interests. I mean, there's, sometimes there's business arrangements, you know, a marriage of convenience, power, influence. But we always have selfish reasons for getting married. Even in Ruth's world. I mean, if we get married for individual fulfillment, in, the, in other cultures, they get married for family because family is everything. You know, like a Middle Eastern Palestinian man wouldn't say, you know, if she doesn't love me, I'm nobody. He would say, if I have no sons, I'm nothing. And so they get married. And in our culture, because we've taken God out of the equation, the reasons for getting married are amped up even higher because we don't just want companionship. We don't just want good things like friendship um, and kids and and everything that goes with marriage. We want somebody to, to make sense of our whole lives. We want the other person to make us feel lovely, to, feel, to be somebody. Right? We live to be told that we're lovely. So, for example, uh, Ernest Becker is a, a psychologist, and he wrote this book called Denial of Death, and he says, what do people do when they take God out of the equation? And this is what our culture has done. You, know, you still have to find some way to get you out of bed in the morning, to be a hero. To, to see yourself as the hero of your own story. And he says one of the ways we do that is through romance. He calls it apocalyptic romance. You, the quote's in your bulletin. It's just because people still need to feel heroic and that their life matters. We still have to find some kind of higher meaning in love. And so what we do is we put all that pressure on, the, on our spouse or our future spouse and say, I want you to meet all my spiritual and moral needs. Tell me I'm somebody. Tell me that I'm lovely. Tell me that I'm worth living for. We spend all our time, I mean, this is what our young people are doing. We spend all our time looking for that one true love, our soulmate, 
that if we find them, we believe that not only will we be healed, but everything will be justified. And yet here we have Ruth, not only resisting temptation, physical temptation, but she's marrying out of self for selfless reasons. And this is why Boaz says this is an even greater act of love than what you did for your mother-in-law in the first place by leaving home. You're marrying an older man. And of course, the other incredible act of morality is on Boaz's side. Is, as a man, he doesn't take advantage of her. I mean, you have a man with real desires. He's resisting temptation. Boaz has the clarity of thought in the middle of the night. He has clear thoughts in the middle of the night. Who does that? I do. I don't. And yet he says, I'm, I'm going to do everything according to the law to redeem you. Right? He doesn't take any shortcuts. He has self-control. You have Boaz and Ruth living lawful lives that are actually beautiful pictures of love. Do you see that? That faithfulness to God's law, sex only belongs in marriage, do not commit adultery, Um, control your temptations, all these things, control your desires. It's an act of love. It's a picture of love. So how do you get to that point? (laughs) where you're not controlled by the need for physical oneness, but also spiritual uh, significance. And here's what, what Ruth helps us do. One, you're supposed to recognize that God's gift of marriage and physical oneness are, are gifts. They're good things. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 3, says, at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. You're supposed to think of Genesis. Because it doesn't say Boaz and Ruth. All of a sudden it changes to a man and a woman. And it wants you to think of the, the last time in the Bible a man was sleeping and woke up and found this woman and exploded in praise. It was when Adam first met his wife Eve. Adam, he's sleeping. And he explodes and he says, finally, at last, here's the woman I've been waiting for. Looking flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. He's saying there's physical attraction. She's going to take away some of my loneliness. And there's physical intimacy. The two shall become one flesh. Naked without shame. No pressure to be God for the other person. And just, just by thinking of that moment, you're supposed to remember that marriage was God's idea. And that, that God would be so selfless to even create us to need one another. That those needs, those desires to, to have a companionship, to have friendship, to be in relationship is because God made you in his image. And he says, I love you so much, I'm going to let go and, and give you other relationships. I'm not going to hold on to you that tightly. For the only thing that was not good in the garden was for Adam to be alone. And just, just think about that. Adam's in paradise. No sin, no suffering. He's walking with God in the cool of the evening. And, and God says it's not good to be alone. 
And so that's what I want you to see. Marriage is a good thing. This is what it's trying to get you to think about. Marriage is a gift. God created uh, the whole idea of becoming one flesh. But then it also teaches us that marriage is not an ultimate thing. And you have a couple hints here. Because one, the whole story is about two widows. That physical friendship and marriage, it just can't physically bear the weight of saying, you will be my everything forever. It's just not possible because, sadly, we die. We're, we're mortal. That The best love, the best relationship, the best kind of friendship will end here on earth. Right. Or look at Boaz and Ruth. They're together after midnight in the dark. They're clothed. And because of the tension, we know we're not in Eden anymore. To be man and woman without shame, without any hint of embarrassment. We know that's only true in the, in the stories. Because shame infects all of our relationships. We enter into relationships to cover our shame. To get that person to say, you're somebody. So you see, marriage is a good thing, but it's not meant to be an ultimate thing. And so, like girls, I mean, this is, this is what I would say to all of us. It doesn't matter whether you're single or married. Your husband can't be Prince Charming. You probably already figured that out if you're married. <laughs> but if you're single, just because you go from singlehood to, mar to, to married, it doesn't, it's not going to change you. <laughs> you're still going to be you. You're not going to find a guy who's going to sweep you off your feet and take away all of your problems. You're, gonna find, you're looking for a guy who's saying, I'm willing to make your problems my own. And it would be the same for us as guys, right? If you're single or married, you can't look to your spouse and to be your everything, to get all your respect, to say I'm somebody because she likes me right now. I just can't, I can't live up to that kind of expectation. Right. Marriage is a good thing, but not an ultimate thing. And yet what makes our faith so unique, which is, is that the her some of the her greatest heroes of our faith are single. As soon as Ruth gets married, she drops out of the story. Right. Jesus, I mean, he didn't, he didn't have a spouse while on earth. Paul, he, far as we know, he was single. And he would say things, if you're married, great, stay married. If you're single, that's great too, stay single. There's advantages and disadvantages to both. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Right. And so what it does is pulls the pressure off. So when you're, when you're at... Right. See, what... What this chapter in Ruth is trying to get us to see is that marriage is a good thing, not an ultimate thing, and that marriage actually points to the even better relationship, a relationship with God. You're supposed to get a, just a glimpse of how good a selfless marriage would be. That's what we're, we're seeing in Ruth and Boaz. And you see it right here in the text. I'll show it to you. All right. That Ruth tells Boaz to spread, cover me with your wings, and I don't know if it's in your Bible, but in the ESV, there's a little note that says it could also be translated, cover me with your garment. 
And so you've got this motherly picture, cover me with your wings, but it's also a wedding picture of cover me with your garment, marry me. It's, it's a two-sided coin. And so what, <laughs> what the author is trying to get you to see is that Ruth and Boaz's marriage points to the way that God loves his people in a selfless marriage. It's astounding. So what's going to make you moral after midnight? Is he, when nobody's looking to control your, your heart, your actions, you have to be controlled by an affection that will actually fill that hole in your heart that, that will cover your shame and give you the motivation to want to be selfless for someone else. Because when you're controlled by an ultimate love, God's love, it doesn't mean you're going to do this perfectly. But you have the resources to look at it and say, whether I get this or not, I'll be okay. Because God's love is permanent. So think about it this way. Remember what Jesus' first miracle was? And it wasn't some, you know, if I was going to announce my ministry, my supernatural power, I probably would fly across, you know, the land like Superman, you know, or blast somebody with my laser beams, all, the, all my enemies, you know, some kind of dramatic display of power. Jesus is at a wedding in the middle of nowhere, and he turns water into wine just to keep the party going. Now, why in the world would he do that? I mean, surely there's a greater point to this miracle than just keeping the alcohol flowing. Because, I mean, weddings in Jesus' day were a week-long thing, and what they would do is the best wine would come out, and when everyone was drunk and didn't care how good the wine was anymore, then they would bring out the watered-down stuff. And in this wedding, you've got these two young people who are about to be deeply ashamed because the wine's completely gone, and the rest of their lives are going to be known in this small community as the, the people who couldn't afford a good wedding. And so Jesus' mother intervenes. She says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus turns and says, woman, why do I care? My hour is not here yet. He's really cranky for being at a wedding. <laughs> is he not? And so you picture it. Jesus is surrounded by laughing and the rejoicing, the drinking, the storytelling, every good thing about a wedding. And Jesus is lost in thought. What do you think about when you're at a wedding as a single person? Your own wedding. All right, so Jesus is at a wedding, thinking about his wedding, and he's getting grumpy. <laughs> if you could put it that way, perfectly. He's thinking about his hour. What is his hour? The hour in the Gospel of John is the moment of his death. And so Jesus is at a wedding, thinking about what it would cost to have his wedding, his own death, to have a bride, to have somebody he could turn and look to, and look at it and say, finally, you're the ones I've been waiting for. Right. I mean, Boaz looked at Ruth and said, you are a worthy woman, and he just explodes in praise. Can Jesus say that about us? As we, even as we talk about these things, love, marriage, always honest, always chaste, and thought, word, and deed, always doing the right thing in the dark. I mean, Jesus is thinking deeply about marrying a bride who's been unfaithful, 
who's deeply ashamed, us, me. And thinking about the cost of what it would be to cover her, cover us with his garment, to cover us with his righteousness. It's the cross. I mean, that's what the gospel is. It's a great exchange where God says, I want you to be my bride for my son. And for that to happen, there has to be a great exchange. I mean, you get married, you know. Um, well, I use our, the example of our marriage. Bethany was fortunate to marry into debt. <laughs> All of my debt, none of hers. And when you get married, what's yours becomes hers, and what's hers becomes yours. And the same thing happens on the gospel. Jesus takes all of our debt, our sin, and he pays the price, bearing God's wrath, so that we could get everything he has, the robes of righteousness, a reputation of being the perfect spouse, someone who's always been faithful, even in the dark, even as temptation arose. I mean, Jesus transformed darkness in the cross as a place where even as he bore our sin, and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was still being faithful in the dark. As there was a cost to it, it hurt. This is love. This is biblical love. It says, God to marry a sinful people makes no earthly sense. Just as we would look at Ruth and say, why would you marry for your mother-in-law? We're supposed to think bigger picture and say, this is how God redeems his people. <laughs> because in conclusion, I mean, the best marriage points to the ultimate marriage. And that's what you need to be faithful when nobody's looking. You need to know that whether you, yeah, I'll say it this way, this isn't freedom to sin, but in the same way, whether you are faithful or whether you, you fall, if you are in Christ, if you are covered by the robes of righteousness, if you are in relationship with Christ, right, Jesus looks at you the same way. He says, I'm going to be faithful. Your problems are my problems. I'm not leaving you. I'm going to teach you how to be faithful. That's love. In conclusion, I mean, the gospel, according to chapter 3 of Ruth, does a couple things. It's showing you how God, God graciously really does care about your loneliness, and he gives you other people, even in romantic contexts. This whole idea of being one flesh, that's God's plan. Celebrate it. Enjoy it. That's that's what it was there for. Read Song of Solomon. You'll be even more embarrassed. Right? And the Bible says things that even we in our, um, with no, nothing holding us back, that would make us blush. But at the same time, it's meant to point, point us to an even deeper reality that, that fallen human beings can't fill that hole in our heart. It points to a bigger, better love, a love that will never leave nor forsake, forsake you. Jesus became human. He became flesh of our flesh, bone of our bones, that he could look at you as unfaithful as you have been and I have been and say, at last, <laughs> that's what heaven's going to be. 
the great marriage supper of the Lamb where we're all celebrating, where we will become what Jesus saw all along, holy and without blemish, as we eat and drink and celebrate. And when that sinks in, when that penny drops, you're going to start to think twice about what you're doing alone in the dark because God has been faithful for you. Go and learn what it means. Blessed are all those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Run to this Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are so much better to us than we deserve. And uh, I pray that while your spirit would come and convict us of sin, but would show us the beauty of of Jesus' love for the bride, for his bride, the church, us. And I pray that you would use that love to change the affections of our hearts, that we might be faithful in any temptation, tempting situation that we might find ourselves in. So make us a faithful people as you have been faithful to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.